morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Probably assuming that I'm preaching today because Scott's trying to put the pieces of his life back together after Georgia lost last night. But that was not the case. This is this has been on the uh, the docket for a while now, so that had nothing to do with his uh, sad demeanor, sullen face. Don't mention it as you leave today, please. So he's, he's, yeah, that's right, exactly. He's almost over it now, so let's don't bring that back up. Um, we're continuing with our Songs of the Season um, sermon series. Last week, Scott covered Come O Come Emmanuel, talked about the name Emmanuel and mentioned several other biblical phrases such as uh, the rod of Jesse, key of David, day spring from on high and kind of talked about what those were in relation to Christ and we do this so that as we sing these hymns, as we sing these carols and even if we hear them on the radio, we sing them with family, we see them on TV, hear them on TV, that we, we understand the richness of uh, of these songs and the truth of these songs and we hope that that will shape our um, ideas and thoughts about the Christmas season. And so today we're going to look at joy to the world. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 98. Psalm 98. Um, joy to the world was written by Isaac Watts. Um, he is known as the father of English hymnody. Uh, he started writing hymns at a very early age. As a matter of fact, he came home from church one day and was kind of grumbling about the music at church. Thankfully, that doesn't happen in 2021, whatever year we're in. Um, but his dad, uh, in a very winsome way, said, okay, well, you give us something better to sing. And so 600-plus hymns later, here we are, uh, Isaac Watts being one of the prolific uh, hymn writers, hymns sung all over the world. Uh, you know, I'm sure, many of those. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. How sweet and awesome is this place when I survey the wondrous cross. Some of those songs that, that we've sung, some of us, all of our lives. So in not, at 1719, though, he put together a hymnal called, and I love it when I try to, the titles of like 300-year-old books. Ready? Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament. All right? He took all 150 psalms, and he tried to kind of paraphrase them and put them into New Testament language and style. And so, Joy to the World was Isaac Watts' paraphrase of Psalm 98. And so, that's why we're looking at Psalm 98. Now, he first titled this song, Joy to the World, his first title was The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. And really, as you look at the song, and you sing the song, you look at the lyrics, it's such a fitting title, because that is really what's trying to be communicated, that this is King Jesus coming to rule and to reign, and the benefits of that rule and reign. So I want to read Psalm 98 in its entirety, and then we'll go back and look at it, just a couple of things uh, from this psalm. So should be up on the screen, maybe not, maybe I was late. Lee's back there scrambling, sorry. Lee's on the spot, he's sweating. Psalm 98, I'll go ahead and read that for you. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. 
His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let me pray. God, would you open our eyes and our ears to your truth this morning? And may we hear from you, a God who sent his Son to endure heartache and strife, to bring joy to the world. Help us to have thankful hearts and respond in worship and faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's kind of under... uh, uh, It is important words. They're hard sometimes. It's important that we understand the word joy before we move forward. And if you look at the Greek and the Hebrew, both, uh, in a sense, as the... uh, as the great rock band Boston says, it's more than a feeling, right? That's typically what we think about joy is we're just happiness, we're smiling. Um, but really, at its root, in those ancient languages, it meant way more than that. It, it was always something that motivated people to action or a proper attitude. Uh, and so I, I want us to think that way, um, that this is not just, we're not trying to just conjure up happiness for the Christmas season by talking about joy to the world. That it's deeper than that. That if you look at the fruit of the Spirit, joy is the second fruit that's listed. And fruit should be observable, right? Should work itself out in the life of the believer. I want you to see this as well. That it was Christ's joy to bring joy to the world. And that's our main Kind of point. I want everything to work back to that today. And we see that in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, which you're probably familiar with, but I want to read. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That it was Christ's joy that motivated him to endure the cross, to reject or disregard the shame that he would face in that process. It was that joy that kept him nailed to the cross, to pay for our sins to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. The commentator Matthew Henry says it like this, Jesus had something in view under all his sufferings. 
which was pleasant to him. He rejoiced to see that by his suffering he should make satisfaction to the injured, injured justice of God and give security to his honor and government, that he should make peace between God and man, that he should seal the covenant of grace and be the mediator of it, that he should open a way of salvation to the chief of sinners, and that he should effectually save all those whom the Father had given him, and himself be the firstborn among many brethren. This was the joy that was set before him. In other words, as Christ looked upon the cross and the suffering, knowing that is the reason he came, to do the Father's will and dying for the sins of God's people. That it, it was joy for Christ to think about he was making peace between God and man. It was joy for Christ to think about that he was sealing the covenant of grace and he would be the mediator of that covenant as well. It was the joy of Christ that he should open a way for the salvation of sinners. And it was for our joy that he did that. He lived and died that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit and as a result that we can have joy and not, like I said before, not a fleeting happiness for the Christmas season, but a real, deep, meaningful joy. Jesus mentions this joy in John 15, 9 through 11. He tells his disciples, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So when we talk about joy to the world, this is not a short-lived, happy moment of elation. It's not situational or seasonal. It is full joy. Jesus said, leap for joy when you're persecuted for my name's sake. That is not seasonal fleeting joy. That's deep, meaningful joy. James said, consider it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. That is not fleeting joy that can push you through trials or push you through persecution. It is a joy that is real, that works itself out in attitude and action. It motivates us to endure and to love and to serve because we are united with Christ and through Him, Paul says, God graciously gives us all things to maintain our faith in our Heavenly Father. Even in the midst of hardship, trouble, worry, strife, we have everything we need to endure. We have a real hope. Because listen, that real hope is anchored in Jesus Christ. It's not anchored in a season. It's not anchored in uh, an empty hope. Our joy is anchored in Jesus Christ. So it was the joy of Christ to bring joy to all the world. So let's look at Psalm 98. Now that we hopefully have a better understanding of this joy. And I would mention also that world here, joy to the world, it's all creation. Okay? And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit in just a few minutes. But I want to, all my OCD brethren and sisters, uh, I'm going to start at the end and then go back to the beginning. Okay? So just buckle up. 
All right, I'm going to rock your boat a little bit this morning. But I want to read first verses 8 and 9 of Psalm 98. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And we see this fleshed out by Isaac Watts in the lines, Let earth receive her king. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace. And so, point one on your outline is this. Christ's kingship brings us joy. And that's what Isaac Watts is trying to communicate, that we have a king, King Jesus, who is unlike any king who's ever walked the earth. That he is the king of king and lord of lords. That the buck stops with him. But the good news is, he's a good king. Righteous. A judge who executes every aspect of his kingship with righteousness and truth and grace and equity. Jesus doesn't struggle with racism or classism. King Jesus makes all his decisions based on truth and righteousness. He's never partial. He's never political. And maybe it's just me, but does your heart not long for that kind of king? Don't you long for leaders who would make decisions based on righteousness and truth and grace? And it somewhat makes us long for Christ to return. To see that kingdom in fullness. That we're celebrating His first coming and He gets the ball rolling, so to speak, on His kingdom. And it begins to rule and reigns in the hearts of His people, but it's not complete. It's not here in its fullness, and we long to see that. When all the injustices that we've endured, all the erroneous judgments against us, every lie and insult that's been hurled at us, Christ will make right in His second coming. And look, that, that truth ought to bring you some peace. It ought to bring you real joy. That in those moments, we don't have to feel the need to repay evil with evil. Or give up when things get difficult. Because King Jesus' joy is to judge with equity, to rule with truth and grace and righteousness. We just read about that. The Von Hermans, Luke, did a great job reading Isaiah 9 this morning that talks about the government, how Christ rules. And it says this. I'm going to skip down to verse 7. It says, Of the increase of His government, this is Jesus, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. In other words, here's what, here are the characteristics of the way that Christ will rule when his kingdom comes in fullness. It will be a government of peace and justice and righteousness. Paul says, the kingdom's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And again, don't we long for that? Don't we long for leaders who won't spend so much time on those things that really don't matter, but would make decisions based on 
not this certain political party or this particular view, but it would make decisions about righteousness and peace and joy. Christ's kingship is different. And if you're joined to Christ, that is your king who rules and reigns. And he brings us joy through the way he executes his rule for us. As Isaac Watts wrote, he rules the world with truth and grace. And that is to our benefit and to our joy. All right, last thing. It's only two points, I know. I'm only going to get two-thirds of my paycheck, but it's fine. It's okay. Psalm 98, let's look at verses 1 through 3. Because here's the other point. Christ's redemption brings us joy. Not only does His kingship bring us joy, but His redemption also brings us joy. We see this in Psalm 98 in the first three verses. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. And really, just side note, I think this is where Isaac Watts, like he walked in and said, See, Daddy? He says, Sing a new song. Okay? Tired of these old songs. It's biblical. All right? For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. If you are here and you belong to Christ, those verses are about you. That God's right hand and his holy arm has worked salvation out for you. Yes, big picture. God's people, the whole group. But there's, there's a real sense in which God individually, in his, in his own unique way, has worked salvation out for you and for me. And we see this word salvation over and over in these verses, and I don't want you to just think the moment where you became a Christian. That's part of it. But God's salvation is so much bigger. Salvation of God's people started in Genesis 3.15. And the salvation of God's people will not end until Revelation 22. That yes, He saved us once in a point of time. That He's going to continue to change us. Continue to make us more like Jesus. And eventually He will come in His kingdom. And He'll wipe every tear. He'll bind every wound. He'll clean up all this mess that we've made. and We will live with Him in peace and in joy. That is the heart of what this word salvation really means. But it is, it's personal, right? I mean, we all were once ruled by another prince. The prince of the power of the air, as Paul describes him. Paul even goes on to say we were his children. But the grace of God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ and brought salvation to all those who would believe. I mean, that's what the psalmist here in Psalm 98 is getting at. That God remembers his steadfast love and his faithfulness to his people, and so he takes his right hand, his holy arm, and he brings salvation to his people. How can he do that? Because he's the king. He gives the orders, he makes the rules, the buck stops with him. 
but he's a good king who never, ever forgets his people, who, are, who is always at work for his people, working for righteousness and justice and equity. All of those Old Testament prophecies find their fulfillment in Christ, who was fully God, fully man, and born to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. And it was through Him that we were delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God. That is salvation. And He will hold us, in other words, He will pluck us out of His hand. We will persevere to the end where we will be glorified for all eternity. And we're not the only ones longing for that return of Christ. This is not just joy to humans. It's joy to the world. Because creation is also feeling the effects of sin. Paul says it like this in Romans 8. 19 through 22, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, Paul's saying, look, even creation is waiting on that day when Christ returns, we are resurrected for all eternity. Okay, that's what Paul is saying creation itself is waiting on, is that second coming. For the creation was subjected, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So those moments when you're like Jesus come quickly, we long for you to return, creation is saying the same thing. They're feeling the same thing. They are waiting for the consummation of Christ's kingdom. There's so much brokenness in our world. I think that's one point we can all agree on. Can't argue about it. It's so pervasive. And it affects us in so many different ways. Relationally and, and all kinds of other things. But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of that brokenness, we can have hope, we can have joy because we have been redeemed by Jesus. We have a new ruler in our hearts. We have one who's committed to changing us more and more into the image of Christ. And no brokenness, no corruption, no sin, not even Satan himself can stop God and his right hand and his holy arm from working out Salvation for us. There is coming a day when brokenness will be eliminated, sin will be no more, creation will once again be perfect, and our redemption and our joy will be complete. Salvation is bigger than just get out of hell free card. Like I just want to avoid the fire, I want to I want to go where it's the weather's nicer. Okay? It's bigger than that. It's life-altering, heart-changing, joy-producing salvation. It's inexplicable, really, incomprehensible. In Christ, thankfully, 
we as well as all creation, and we've seen this, waters are clapping, hills are singing. We all can confidently sing verse 3 of Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, for as the curse is found. Where sin abounds, God's gracious redemption, his great salvation abounds all the more. So what difference do these truths make in our lives? This truth of Christ's kingship, the truth of Christ's redemption, what difference does it make? When I sing joy to the world, what difference does that make? When I read Psalm 98, what difference does that make? Well, here's three things by way of application. First, Christ's kingship prioritizes our lives. He is king. He calls the shots. He gives us marching orders, and that allegiance to him should shape everything we do with our lives. What do I mean by that? Well, if my highest allegiance is to Jesus, then it affects my relationships. I consider others better than myself. If my highest allegiance is to Jesus, I honor him with my work, and I work unto the Lord and not for man. If my highest allegiance is to King Jesus, then I honor him with my words, and I don't let unwholesome talk come from my mouth, but only that which builds others up. That's what it looks like to pledge your allegiance to King Jesus. And your allegiance to him, this is the crazy part, completes your joy, says Jesus. Okay, it's not drudgery. It's not, you know, I got to do this. He's saying, look, if you come and follow me, you'll lose the world, but you'll gain your soul. That responding to Jesus, abiding in him, connecting yourself to him, is what completes your joy, which what gives you that joy that can push you through even the most difficult times. So Christ's kingship should prioritize our lives. Second, if Jesus is king of your heart, if that's who sits on the throne of your heart, who you build your life around, and it's not, you know, college football or America or money or fame and fortune, if King Jesus is sitting on your heart, that is who you bow to. There should be evidence of that. There should be fruit in your life, such as joy. But not only that, love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the characteristics of the king's men and the king's women. When you go read the Beatitudes, where Jesus is preaching in Matthew 5, He's not saying, hey, here's, here's the, uh, the five or six points you've got to get right to get into the kingdom. What Jesus is saying there is, the people in the kingdom, this should be the characteristics of your heart and your life and your attitude. That there ought to be fruit. Why am I saying this? Because if you're claiming that King Jesus is your Lord and Savior, 
but you can't find any fruit of that in your life, I'll just encourage you to meet with the Lord. Have Him help you search your heart and your mind. And that if you've never joined yourself, pledged your total allegiance to Jesus Christ, that you would do so by faith. Last thing here, in light of the kingship of Jesus and Christ's redemption, we, of all people, should have hope. Okay, and I'm, I'm not saying you're never going to endure hardship, that you're going to feel some despair. But if your Lord is king of kings, if he is sovereign, if he reigns, and he doesn't just control everything, he controls it as a good, righteous, gracious, truth-filled God. We ought to have a lot of hope. And even when Facebook is telling us something else, or CNN, or Fox News, or your neighbor, or the Times Daily, we need to go back and look at Psalm 98. It says, it may all be falling, around, falling apart around me, but God's right hand and his, his holy arm are for me. That he's going to remember his steadfast love and his faithfulness to me. And so therefore, I should have hope. You and I have a king who does whatever he pleases heaven and on earth and under the earth which means there are no hopeless situations for believers it may not work out like you want it may take longer than you want maybe way harder than you want but there's always hope because you have all things that you need in Christ and he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And Paul says there's nothing that you can do or the devils of hell or anything else can do to separate you from his love. We're about to participate in, in the Lord's Supper. And our prayer as a church is that this meal would point you to the hope, which is Jesus Christ. Our prayer would be that this meal would strengthen you in hope and that it would reinvigorate your joy for the Lord. But before we do that, I want to read just one passage of Scripture, and I'll end with this. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to read verses 3 through 8. Because I think this passage particularly pulls together the sacrifice that Christ made, which is what we're thinking about during the Lord's Supper, and our joy. I think Peter does a great job here of putting those two things together. So let me read beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, 
kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, remember big picture, not just that one moment, all the way to eternity, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. May Christ's joy through His kingship and His redemption be our joy. And may it be a joy like Peter described, incomprehensible and full of glory to Him who brought joy to the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. For being willing to send your only son. And for him to leave the paradise of heaven and to take on flesh and to walk this earth for 33 years. To be persecuted, to be shamed, to be disgraced. And yet for the joy set before him, he endured. Father, we we need that kind of joy. We long for that kind of joy. That even in the midst of hard times, difficulties, suffering, doubts, that joy would help us push through to the other side. Father, I pray for those here who don't know that kind of hope don't know that kind of joy, who are in the midst of things that are really, really hard, that are sucking the life out of them. Holy Spirit, would you move close to them, bring comfort and peace and joy. May you remind them of the truth that we have a righteous judge who's coming. And help us to have joy especially now, Lord, as we partake in one of your sacraments. pray this in Christ's name.